a fantastic legacy would be for El Kateb's influence to, to fall away, to have that overturned and end the arbitrary detention of asylum seekers in Australia. Welcome to UNSW Alumni Spotlight, where we talk with our postgraduate alumni about their professional and personal stories. We'll hear what they've achieved in their professional life and how postgraduate study helped shape their career path. I'm Sarah McDonald. Today my guest is Alison Batterson, and Alison is the Director and Principal Solicitor and Registered Migration Agent for Human Rights for All. She is the recipient of the National Council of Women's Australia Day Award for Postgraduate Law. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. What is Human Rights for All? Human Rights for All is a charitable law firm that I founded um, actually during the time I was doing my master's at, at UNSW, um, and it focuses on complex case and long-term detained asylum seekers, mainly in onshore detention in Australia. Well, we need to go much more deeply into that and the incredible work you do. But you have a lot of degrees before you got to that Masters of Law and were named on the Dean's List last year. So even before that, though, law was on your, I suppose, in your consciousness because your dad was a lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. So my father worked um, for the International Labor Organisation and so had instilled in both his children, my brother's also a lawyer as well, um, a, a sense of justice and and right. Um, so I'd, I'd actually started, I wasn't going to be a lawyer. Um, I was in Canberra and I went to the ANU and did arts and Asian studies. Um, and then I went to the University of Sydney to do my um, JD there. And then I travelled for many years overseas in a variety of, of countries as a, as a corporate lawyer, in fact. Um, well, even before you did that, you you you, you went to China bef- while you were doing your undergraduate yes, in Asian studies. Yes, that's correct. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I went to. I did a um, course in China on on Mandarin in Xi'an, where the terracotta warriors are. Fantastic! One of the most well known places in China. But you weren't just studying there, were you? It sounds <laughs> like you're having a pretty interesting life in China. I was having a great time in in China. I decided that. Instead of perhaps um, attending university classes, the best way to learn Chinese would to be to get out and about amongst it with the the people. So I ended up um, working in in nightclubs um, as a dancer and sometimes as a, a bouncer, which was great fun. So you know how to say get out very well. <laughs> no, actually, I was one of those friendly bouncers. You're a I good think. bouncer. Yeah, I think. And by a dancer though, because your mum was a dancer. Yeah, my mum is. In fact, she's in her mid seventies and she still has her own dance school and still performs. Uh, she's an international uh, folk dance teacher. Um, so I wouldn't say I am an elegant dancer, but I do have some rhythm. You're an internationalist then from from both frameworks in your family. It's born and bred into you yeah, and, 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 and you never just even conceived straight away that study would just be something you would do in Australia, obviously. No, absolutely not. Um, and my whole family has a very international outlook, um, an emphasis on, on travel and learning about other cultures, learning other languages. Um, so it was always assumed and, and aimed for um, that we would – travel and study overseas and, and have a very international outlook. Right. Did you travel as a young child? We did not too much, to be honest. Um, we were, you know, a middle-class family in, in Canberra, so read a lot of books and did the classic where you saved up for several years to be able to afford to go to go anywhere, anywhere. But that's where all the family money went and certainly my money went when I started to work um, was for international trips. Yeah. So 
after China, mm. you you came back and you decided to study law. And right from the beginning, was that because you wanted to, I suppose, you know, express those values your father had in, um, intrinsically developed in It you? was that. It was also a frustration that I didn't feel that I entirely understood the world and I with the benefit of hindsight, now realise that, in fact, no one entirely understands the world at any given point in their life. Um, but I, I felt left out of important conversations and, like, I just wasn't quite able to contribute in a way that I wanted to. Um, and from the discussions around the kitchen table, I thought law was the way to go to more fully understand how the world works, how decisions are made and how I can influence decisions. So you went after that degree, you went to London. And what, what were you doing in London that you felt you couldn't do in Australia? Um, so I finished my um, JD in Australia and then I did work for a couple of years in Australia um, as a corporate private equity lawyer, which was in fact a fantastic experience, great training. Um, but many Australian-based lawyers follow this this path where they go overseas uh, to further their careers. Um, and I, my brother and I are very close and he was already in the UK. He was studying at Oxford um, and then starting with a, a UK firm. So I jumped on the bandwagon. Um, and the, the training in the UK and the exposure to larger clients and more sophisticated clients was certainly very attractive. What do you mean more sophisticated clients? <laughs> um, it's a different – so working in the UK, you also have to consider the European Union and so you're, a lot of the structuring in corporate law that you do um, looks at various European structures as, as well as UK ones. So it's much more international in its approach rather than Australia. Mm. But you weren't just – doing law there. You, you you had another hobby there, not dancing. You no, traded in your dance shoes for, for what? For boxing gloves, which was um, – so I'd, I'd been a, a kickboxer for quite a while in, in Australia. Then I went to the UK. Um, kickboxing wasn't quite um, as popular there, so I transferred over to straight boxing um, and I was able to find a fantastic boxing coach who was an ex- Olympian. Um, so he trained me me up um, and I was at a great law firm that understood that boxing was something that was incredibly important to me. Um, so it gave me the time to, to train and in fact travel to places like Ghana where Azuma Nelson, who's one of the world's great um, boxers, comes from. So I was able to train there for a while as well. Is it go with law? Does it dovetail for you? I like to think it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's... Um, I mean, it's an incredible stress relief um, release, but it's also, um, I wouldn't say combative. It, it's a sense of, it's a source of power. And I like that, got to be honest. Feels good. Well, you like being a source of power, but you also like taking on power. <laughs> yes, yes. I. Um, it, the bigger they are, there, there's a bit of that saying in there. Um, it's all about training and, and preparation, which is the, the same with boxing, hours and hours of, of training and you know, correct diet and enough sleep and, and discipline. And, and it's the same in law as well. To then perform when to it matters. To then perform when it matters and to your best. Where to next? Um, so from the UK, I moved to Zimbabwe uh, with my partner at the time. We went to a sustainable demonstration village that was just outside Harare. Uh, we lived in a, 
uh, a hut for about approximately a year um, and we organised a microfinance bank. We taught health, nutrition, boxing, sport, running, um, literacy skills, computer skills, a, a huge range of, of things. Um, it, was in, it, it was fascinating. I absolutely loved it. And how big was the community? And when you say hut, what do you mean? Um, Take us in your hut. So the hut had – so we shared um, – I mean, it was quite a nice hut, going to be perfectly honest. We it had three rooms um, and we shared it with a family of five or six. Um, so we had one room, the family had another. Uh, we basically cooked on an open fireplace because electricity was uh, very intermittent, hauled water out of a well, collected firewood um, and really, you know, lived like people in poor areas, black or white in Zimbabwe, we're living in 2009. What understanding of the world, humanity, did that give you that you use today? Um, it taught me a huge variety of, of things. Um, I had been very interested in aid and humanitarian work before I went to Zimbabwe. I still am, but from that experience, I'm absolutely convinced that aid programs need to be tailored not only to the country and the city, but to the individual villages and almost the individual household. Um, the individual needs are often missed with broad brushstroke approaches. Um, I was also quite concerned about the official aid organisations that were in Zimbabwe weren't actually um, interacting with the locals in, in a way that I thought was very effective. Um, so... That, in, in particularly in combination with setting up a microfinance bank, which we did with, with locals, um, convinced me that if you're going to work on an aid project, you have to live in that place with those people and you have to stay long term. You can't fly in and out. You can't stay for a year or two years. It, it almost has to become your home. Right. You can't have the, I suppose, what they call the saviour complex. No. Yeah. No, absolutely not. It, it, yeah. You can't have some sort of humanitarian tourism going on. It, it just does not work. Why did you head to Indonesia? Um, so the position in um, Zimbabwe became increasingly untenable, I think, because of what, what we were doing around some human rights work and um, some of the microfinance work. Um, and to be honest, we were running out of money because that was a volunteer position, um, as many of these great positions uh, are and turn out to be. So I went to Indonesia to work as a corporate lawyer, again, with a large uh, global law firm. What a contrast. And when you say untenable, <laughs> you mean was it getting dangerous or? Um, it, it, it's, it, it is a delicate subject. Um, it, some of, I guess, my views in particular were um, particularly about the role of, of women and um, also around the, the role of justice and corruption uh, were perhaps becoming more widely known. People who know me would understand that I struggle to stay silent. So on occasion, um, I probably spoke up a bit too often. Okay. And and yes, yeah, so what was that like going from that work in Zimbabwe and that lifestyle to Indonesia working back in the corporate law sector? Um, look, it was actually fine. It was a fairly easy transition. I'd been a corporate lawyer for a few years before that as well. So it was really just stepping back into that role. I have a background in Asian studies, so Indonesia was um, very familiar. Um, so it was, it, you know, it, it was another step on my legal journey that made total sense at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's Australia's nearest neighbour and mm. yet a lot of Australians only go to Bali. Mm. Which is not Indonesia. Which is not Indonesia <laughs> at all. So so did you feel that it was bringing together, yes, all these different strands of, of Yeah, bringing life? together my law, um, Asian studies, political sci- um, science, interest in other countries um, and, and remote travel. So I did a, a large amount of travel in East Indonesia, a lot of diving, a lot of volcano climbing, um, avoided Bali and sort of got out there and had a look at, at other places and met amazing people. So you came home. Mm. Gee, you've travelled a lot. <laughs> Go law. You came home and and you were working as a senior associate in corporate law mm. in Australia, but you decided to quit. Correct. Why was that? I think I reached the point that many senior associates reach where they realise they're working incredibly long hours, they're on the, the treadmill heading towards partnership, and I started to think that there must be something else in life, and, and putting it bluntly, rather than making rich people richer. Um, so I stepped away, took some time out, and really thought about what I could do to contribute back to society. And, and by that stage, I had three stepchildren who live with myself and my partner full time. In fact, I moved in with them. So um, my partner has sole custody of them. Uh, so I needed to do something that was in Australia if I was going to you know, work in, in the human rights field. And you started visiting Villawood Detention Centre. Yeah, I did. I started um, going just as a um, community visitor. Um Three and a half years ago now, there's a fantastic group of, of advocates who visit Villawood on, on various days. Um, in fact, UNSW has a connection with visiting Villawood as well. So quite a few of the undergraduate law students go and they are um, great ambassadors for UNSW. Um, and as I got more um, familiar with Villawood, I began to realise and I could see that there are a large number of detainees uh, who had no or very limited access to legal representation. Um, and I became increasingly concerned about both the lack of access and, and the quality because there's such a need um, for legal representation for asylum seekers that the people who were representing them, you know, are just incredibly busy. Um, so on the basis of that, I started thinking, well, maybe I should set up my own firm um, and I should retrain and really understand what's going on in human rights and asylum seekers in Australia and, and our offshore detention centres. So that's when you started doing your postgraduate study here yes. at UNSW. So how did that come together? What was the you, – you said you needed more study to be able to do mm. that work. I wanted to understand um, – more about what had been happening in Australia, about Australian approaches to human rights. Previously, I'd completed a, um, a graduate diploma at the University of London um, on international human rights law. Um, so I could compare, contrast and compare European, particularly European Court of Human Rights um, rulings and opinions with what was going on in Australia. Um, and we were found to be very lacking, I think we could say. Um, so I started doing courses at, at UNSW that could assist me in my work with asylum seekers in detention. So as you were working with them, you were also working on understanding the law and Australia's how different we were compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. 
how did you manage to um, use the flexibility within the course to be beneficial to actual real work yep. in terms of the work and the cases you started working on? Sure. So I have to say UNSW, the, the lecturers and the administration were incredibly flexible with my needs. Um, so I was attempting to parent full-time, work full-time, um, and I was studying. So every unit that I did, the, the main piece of assessment for that, um, whatever lecturer I had, allowed me to target that towards my human rights and asylum seeker work, however random or tangential the, the connection was to the actual topic. Um, the classes themselves were fantastic because there was a, there's a Socratic method that's used at UNSW, which is very useful for someone like me who likes to discuss ideas. So you turn up and you're expected to have done the readings and then be able to discuss them. Particularly for the masters, that occurred in a small group situation. So not only was I learning from the lecturers and raising specific issues that I had that week, perhaps in detention, um, but also from my peer group as well. And they were experienced and incredibly varied as well. Uh, yeah. What about those connections you made? I mean, you've got such an international connection from, to all over different countries in the mm. world. And I'm sure you've made so many connections as you've, as you've worked. But what about in the actual course? So I've made fantastic connections with the lecturers, uh, who I often email or see for advice or for connections, um, so they can hook me up with someone else who might know some random point on citizenship in another country. Also my peer group, um, I've remained friends with many of them, um, and they are now all over the world. Um, and in fact, I run into some of them in the most bizarre situations where I'm attending an interview for somebody from Nauru and up pops um, somebody that I've been to UNSW with. So again, incredibly useful um, contacts of, of really interesting, intelligent people. And it just, you just, you totally blow out that perception that people have often, uh, of universities as these sort of ivory towers disconnected from the real world. Yeah. And that's, I'm very practically, um, orientated and based. So I didn't, uh, want to do, you know, a very highbrow academic, um, and, you know, theoretical. I, w I wanted something that was academic, but I wanted the practical approach that I could use the law in my everyday life, which is what I needed to do. Mm. And use it you do now. You're involved in some very high-profile cases that people mm. will have heard of. Give us an example of some of the work you do. Sure. So I work on an international level. So um, myself with a, a group of uh, barristers and solicitors around the world have put in a submission to the International Criminal Court accusing individual members of Australia's government of crimes against humanity for the treatment uh, of asylum seekers on Nauru and Manus. Um, I've also worked in overturning an Interpol uh, red notice, which is the first time that's happened using, using Interpol's own procedures um, for an asylum seeker in Australia, who's more commonly known as the terrorist behind the pool fence, not a terrorist. Turns out that you know, the Interpol Red Notice um, was entirely inappropriate. Um, I also do a lot of um, a lot of work with the United Nations, and I make submissions to the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. Um, in the last couple of years. I think we've got now seven opinions from them that opine on Australia's arbitrary detention of asylum seekers. 
Um, and then within Australia, I have a number of um, very interesting cases around habeas corpus, which is, of course, the ancient writ that every law student hears about. And it's all very exciting, um, getting somebody out of detention or, or jail. So we've got a, a high court case on that. Um, and perhaps the most well-known one is the private prosecution of Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, and that's at the moment, again, in the high court with a um, a challenge to the Attorney General who had refused consent for the prosecution of, of Aung San Suu Kyi. So at the moment, we're up against the Attorney General. How can an Australian lawyer like yourself be taking on Aung San Suu Kyi, former freedom fighter? Yes, awkward. <laughs> Some would say so. Aung San Suu Kyi was a childhood hero of mine, and whether I, whenever I played charades or anything else, I would always pick her as as, as my hero. So it, it is um, very disappointing and very disturbing um, what has happened with the Rohingya in um, in Burma and across the border as they flee into to Bangladesh. Um, but it links into my asylum seeker work. So many Rohingya refugees um, have obviously been created from the conflict and quite a few have fled to Australia. Um, so looking, it seems very sensible to me to look at the source of where these refugees are coming from and to try and work to prevent that and also to prevent these sorts of atrocities happening in the future. And so for, for asylum seekers, you help as well. How much is it about the individual and how much is it about pressuring our government to change policies for you? It's both. So Human Rights for All, we do focus on the individual, um, but we also have a mandate or, or an aim to educate and to create societal change. Um, and I believe that that change will happen gradually um, and it will happen with the education of current youth and, and future generations. And when you see uh, people going into the law now, how much do you think they'll be learning something differently in the future due to your work? I mean, can you, can you, I mean, what would be success for you? Success for me, um, there is a case in Australia called El Kateb and it's a very famous case that basically allows the indefinite detention of people who have been found to be owed protection um, in Australia. So asylum seekers are locked up for however long a piece of string is. Human Rights for All, um, through a number of cases, is attempting to challenge El Kateb. So a a fantastic legacy would be for El Kateb's influence to, to fall away, to have that overturned and end the arbitrary detention of asylum seekers in Australia. Alison, you're still a kickboxer in so many ways. <laughs> How can people find out more about your work? Sure. So Human Rights for All is on social media. We have a, a Facebook page, um, HR4A and then AUS for Australia. I'm on Twitter, so at Alison Batterson, and also on our web page, which is www.hr4a, the number four, .com.au. My guest has been Alison Batterson. Thanks so much for chatting to me. Thank you very much. For more information on UNSW courses, please visit futurestudents.unsw.edu.au.